This is a Federal News Network podcast. A couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office issued its 11 millionth patent, only three years after awarding number 10 million, an account that began in 1836. For what this milestone says about USPTO and about the nation, we turn to the man temporarily in charge, Drew Hirschfeld. Mr. Hirschfeld, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And you are, I guess, officially performing the duties and functions of Director of U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, but you are really a career person there. That is correct. I started in 1994. All right. In your view, what is the significance of 11 million patents, especially coming so soon after 10 million? The 11 millionth patent represents a huge milestone, as you said in your opening remarks. It really shows the progress of American innovation. And just in case people had missed the announcement, what was the 11 millionth patent for? The 11 millionth patent was for a method of positioning a replacement heart valve, and it was invented by a small company called Forcey Medical Technologies out of Minnesota. And you spoke to the inventors because of the 11 millionth occasion, I guess, 10,999,999 didn't quite get the notoriety of 11 million. But tell us more about the people behind the number 11 million. I did have a, a great opportunity to talk with them, and, and it was very exciting. First of all, they were very enthusiastic. It's, uh, as I mentioned, two innovators out of Minnesota, and they spent uh, nights and weekends in their garage working on this innovation. Uh, they have a small patent portfolio for their company, which they said is the lifeline of their company. So it really is a wonderful story about American innovation. Uh, They're in clinical testing right now, and they're hoping that this invention, uh, which again will be able to replace somebody's heart valve, will really help uh, save millions of lives. So I'm very excited for them. All right. And then I guess the, uh, the, the pace of granting is continuing, you know, since that date. And seems a good time to ask how the patent and trademark examining workforce has been doing during the pandemic, because USPTO has been one of the early adopters of telework. So how has the pandemic affected USPTO operations? Well, our, our long history of telework really set us up to perform well under the work-at-home restrictions uh, during the pandemic. So prior to the pandemic, we had about 80% of our workforce had the ability to telework at least one day a week. So for us, it was a quick transition when we needed to, and we really uh, proceeded without missing a beat. And we've been examining patent applications and doing all the work that the USPTO needs to do to keep moving forward. Now, number one in the current numbering system dates to 1836, and it took till 2018 to get to 10 million. So with only three years to get to 11 million, that seems to say things are accelerating. What measures have been put in place over the last few years to keep up the USPTO productivity with the pace of applications and and decisions? Well, we have to make sure that we have enough examiners to keep working through uh, all of the applications. We get about 450,000 new applications annually in a whole variety of technologies. So we have over 8,000 examiners who work diligently to make sure that uh, they are keeping American innovation moving forward by getting out their office actions and issuing patents on deserving patent applications. And what is the current time period between application and decision these days? We are about 22 months on average from the time somebody files a patent application 
to the time they get a final decision from us. And that's a little bit shorter, I think, than it was a few years ago, isn't it? It is. We were we were well over three years just a number of years ago, so we've been making great strides in reducing our pendency. Yeah, pendency, that's the word I was trying to think of. We're speaking with Drew Hirschfeld. He is performing the duties and functions of director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And I guess the fact that there is a transition, there's no permanent director in place at the moment, this happens periodically. Would you say that's kind of a testament to the standing workforce, the career workforce that keeps things going regardless of what's going on at the top? Well, I absolutely do think it is a a testament to the workforce. We have a, a very dedicated group. You mentioned how we're functioning during the pandemic. And I will tell you, at all levels of the agency, people really come together, whether it's Uh, changing to mandatory telework or maximum telework, whether it's during a transition, the career force really keeps us moving forward. And I'm very honored to be a part of that. And April 5th, I think you announced, the USPTO announced a special category of patents for the pandemic. Tell us more about that and what kinds of inventions go in there. Thanks, Tom. This is a great program called the Patents for Humanity program. It actually started years ago to highlight humanitarian innovations. Uh, We've recently, on April 5th, started a new category related to COVID vaccines or uh, COVID-related innovations. So the type of inventions that can go in here could be anything uh, that could be related to a vaccine. It could be personal protective equipment or treatments or anything else that will help us recover from uh, the COVID pandemic. Can you give us a sense of the quantity of inventions and patents that are in there so far, or is it too soon? Well, right now, I honestly don't know the quantity at this point. We'll have to wait and see. The program opened up in the beginning of April, uh, and we're looking uh, towards summer to have it run through. So I'm sure there'll be many inventions in there, but I don't know the quantity at this point. Maybe update us on international cooperation. I know that the United States has intellectual property and patent agreements with several nations, Japan and so forth. What's new there? There's a lot moving on that front. And I will tell you, Tom, in my opinion, this is an area that in the future, uh, we really need to do a better job across the globe tapping into each other's resources because Many patent offices are all getting the same innovations from the same innovators, and it's great if we can share work. So what we're doing, we are having, we're testing pilot programs to have examiners from the United States Patent and Trademark Office work with other examiners and share the work that they're doing on similar patent applications so that they can reap the benefits of each other's dedication and work. I think this is a really good uh, step forward. We're also having programs to make sure that we're sharing prior art references. Uh, as time marches on, prior art will grow and grow. By definition, this is what the examiners need to search through. So we have programs to be able to share and make that prior art available to all the examiners. It's also important to try to ensure that China doesn't have its own parallel system that could really gum up the works internationally. And is there progress or at least talks going on there? Sure. There's, there's talks at all levels of, of government to make sure that intellectual property rights are respected across the globe. All right. And you started, as you mentioned, in 1994, and you were an examiner. What types of areas did you examine? That's correct. I started as an examiner in 1994. I, me- I uh, worked in the measuring and testing area primarily. So that was uh, basically any innovation related to measuring distances from one location to another. Wow, so the successors to the uh, ruler, you might say. <laughs> well, it could be it could be inventions related to rulers. It could be inventions related to things like coordinate measuring machines, which measure 
the size and shape of, say, automobiles. So it was a, a fun technology because it was a wide range of, of different innovations. And what does it take to be a great examiner, do you think? So we, we are actually still hiring examiners. So this is a great opportunity to plug the fact that if, if you really like uh, innovation and you like law as well, this is a great job for you. To answer your question, Tom, about what it takes, I really think you need to have somebody that understands the science, somebody who likes to do the research, and also uh, has an affinity for all the laws that we need to understand because certainly understanding the different statutes is important for making those important patentability decisions. And it's a lot easier nowadays because I guess you have totally digitized all of the materials examiners need to look at, so no more pulling of files and boxes and paperwork. So it's, it's different in the sense that examiners today aren't sifting through paper like I was in 1994 when I started. I used to actually get covered in what we used to call patent dust from all the paper. It is all electronic now, but I, I won't say it's necessarily easier because, the, as I said earlier, the prior art grows and grows, so there's a lot more to search through, and the examiner job continues to get more challenging, and, and we're looking for ways to make it more effective and efficient, such as by using artificial intelligence tools. All right, and that's something that's pretty nascent at this point, fair to say? It is, although we're actually rolling out a, we're in the midst of rolling out a brand new search tool for examiners, which not only provides access to many tens of millions of more foreign prior art references, but also actually has some artificial intelligence working in the background to help locate prior art for the examiner and suggest prior references to them. What is the status of that rollout? Is it up and running or are you just testing it at this point? No, we're actually in the middle of a rollout right now. So thousands of our examiners are actually using it now and we're going to continue rolling that out over the next few months. All right. Well, sounds like we have the right guy in charge in the meantime. Drew Hirschfeld is performing the duties and functions of Director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic 
and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who 
who has, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
But thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.